Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. When you hurt someone, you should always apologize to them and try to make up for it. When we sin, we sin not just against one another, but primarily against God. In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright explores how we can ask forgiveness for our sins and the way to achieve the truly penitent heart that God desires. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. Would you turn in your scripture to Psalm 51? If you don't know where to find the Psalms, just open your Bible right in the middle. You should land in the Psalms. If you land in Proverbs, that way it means you went a little bit too far. If you landed in Job, it means you didn't go quite far enough. If you landed somewhere else, I don't know what to tell you. Psalm 51. Hear now God's word. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Father, in these moments... Quiet our our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, that we may hear your voice. 
I pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to lead me, that I would speak words of your truth, that they would be spoken in simplicity with grace, so that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will for all good things that we experience right now. We offer only to you the praise and the glory in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. It's uh, the Easter season. We're fresh off of the Easter celebration. And it may seem odd to read from the Psalms, especially Psalm 51. And you might think, well, what's the connection between Psalm 51 and Easter? Well, actually, there's a very strong connection between the two. I want you to think about what Easter embodies, if you will. What, what kind of images come to your mind regarding Easter? E- Easter is a day of, that's, uh, where all things are new, where, where there's hope and joy and, and, and the promises of God that seem to be coming to fulfillment. It stands in stark contrast to Good Friday, which we celebrate two days before Easter. Good Friday is a day where uh, the, the depravity of humanity is on full display. Things are, are dark, it's hopeless, it's despairing. So there's this drastic contrast between Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday, and it's meant to be that way. And it also feels like there's this stark contrast between the sentiment of Psalm 51 and the Easter message. So how can, how can we associate Psalm 51 with, He is risen. He is risen indeed. In reality, they, they go very well together. Because Easter, Easter depicts the desire of the psalmist's heart. The writer of Psalm 51 seeks and desires that which Easter embodies. Being made new, renewal, joy, hope, promise in God. And it is that kind of thing to which the psalmist lays claim in his petition to God. You see, even before the time that there was a gospel message that we know today, that, that Christ died and was raised on the third day, even, even centuries before that which we know now as the gospel message, God-fearing and God-seeking people understood that the contrite heart is the compass that points toward God. And that is at the center of Psalm 51. So as we read through it the first time, I, I pray that there was a resonance with your heart, that somewhere you could put yourself uh, in, in association with the writer, crying out to God in, in recognition of need to God. It's a, it's a cry of the heart, and that's what the Psalms are. And so as, as we move today, we start with the heart, we're going to go to the head, and then, but, but we're going to go back to the heart when it's all over with, okay? So we're going to heart, head, heart, okay? Recognizing this, when we, when we deal with the Psalms, first of all, please remember that the Psalms are cries of the heart. They are, they are emotional in their content. If you read through the Psalms, you'll find uh, things like uh, anger and, and hopelessness and, and, uh, and sorrow 
and joy, and, and you'll find all kinds of these things that range the emotional spectrum. The, the, the Psalms cry out in these ways. That's what, that's what they're like. And we have to remember that when we read them, that these Psalms are heart expressions. Okay? And when you read them, you have to remember that that's what they are first and foremost. That doesn't mean that we can't take theological meaning from them. But it does simply mean that you don't read the Psalms in, in the same way that you would, for, uh, for example, the, the epistles of the New Testament. You know, when you're re reading Romans and, and Galatians and things like that, you're, you're reading two very different kinds of documents. You know, those letters of Paul in the New Testament were meant to uh, give us doctrine and clarity about our theology. The Psalms have a, have a different kind of purpose. They are meant to resonate with our hearts. It doesn't mean that we can't take meaning from that, in which, we, which we very well can. Psalm 51 is, is one of the Psalms, obviously, but it is one of a narrow uh, genre of Psalms that, that are known as the penitential Psalms. Okay? This is just a couple of minutes for educational purposes so that you know. There are seven Psalms that are readily identified in the 150 Psalms as penitential psalms. They are, they are cries of sorrow and remorse toward God. Psalm 51 is one of them, Psalm 130, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, there are a few others. You'll notice that they are all of the same nature, crying out out of our remorse toward God for forgiveness. Within Psalm 51, you're going to find a, 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 some great examples of some of the forms that you find in this kind of writing. If you would just kind of look at verses 2 and 3, they're great examples. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is known, I'm going to throw an expensive word out to you. This is what is often called synonymous parallelism. Will you remember that word? Here's the good news, you don't have to. Okay, you get no extra credit if you remember that word. All it means is there are two different lines that are, that, that are uh, synonymous in meaning, and the second one really is only there to reinforce the first one. Okay? So the second line just kind of reinforces the first one. Why do I share that with you? Simply because, again, what I want you to know is that you'll find this form of writing throughout the Scripture. When you see it, just recognize it for what it is. It's real easy to try to read more meaning into some of these texts than, than what is intended to be there. Okay? All through Psalm 51, you're going to find that kind of writing where the second, verse, where the second line of the verse kind of reinforces or, or completes the thought of the first. And so we just kind of want to recognize those forms. You'll find them in Psalms, you'll find it in Proverbs, you're going to find it very often in the prophetic writings. You're reading in Isaiah and Jer Jeremiah and Ezekiel and places like that, you're going to find the same kinds of, of form writing. Psalm 51 is considered to be an expression of King David after he had committed his sin with Bathsheba. How many of you remember that story? 2 Samuel chapter 11, chapter 12 when he was confronted with it. If you don't remember, hopefully you remember that there was this guy named King David. Okay. In Israel's history, he is considered to be their most beloved king. Okay, the 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 the, the United Monarchy was, um, you know, maybe almost at its pinnacle under King David. He was known as a man after God's own heart. 
kind of got into this bad situation. You can read for yourself in 2 Samuel chapter 11, but when his men are out at war, he's at home in the castle. He looks down, he sees this really attractive woman whose, whose name was Bathsheba, and he desires her for himself, and so he sends and has her... Uh, by the way, she, she's married. She's married to another guy. So he sends for her, brings Bathsheba. He has relationships with her, unfortunately. You know what happens. You know, she gets pregnant. And then he finds out about that. And does he, then he has, has to create this plot to get her husband back from the battle zone so that, you know, hopefully he can come and have relations with her. And the whole thing will just kind of get swept under the carpet. But her husband doesn't do that because he's tied in faithfulness to you know, his compatriots who are at, still out there in the battlefield. And so that plot didn't work. And so then King David has to come up with another plot. And he uh, conspires to have uh, Bathsheba's husband killed out in battle, which ultimately happens. And the way I usually look at it, in one fell swoop, he wipes out about five of the Ten, ten Commandments. I mean, it's just, you know, they're all gone. So here you have this, you know, this beloved king of Israel, this man described as a man after God's own heart, who just falls into this like horrendous uh, failure of one sinful action right after another. And when he is confronted, and when he comes to, you know, when when the reality of his sin is right before him, Psalm 51 is considered to be an expression of his heart of remorse. And I realize that when people like you and me revisit that story of David's sin in the Old Testament, it's pretty common for us to think, well, I haven't sinned that badly, <laughs> right? <laughs> I may not be perfect, but I haven't sinned that badly, right? Which may be true, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't resonate with the cry of his heart. And I hope that's what we can do. Look with me through this psalm because I want you to see some of the things that this psalm touches on, okay? Let's begin with, with this. The, 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 the psalm begins with a recognition of human need and God's mercy. And I want to hold those two things together. The psalmist begins by saying, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 3 says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Have you ever had that thing in life that you just couldn't escape? Like, like it's, it's right before you all the time. Okay, this is the way he feels, okay? It's not some passing thought and I can just make myself busy. David said, like, my sin is it's right there. It's right in front of my eyes. I cannot escape it. And because he, he, he is aware of his need, he cries out to God because he understands that God's nature is to be merciful. And I have to think what freedom there is in that, to know in, in our in our worst moment of failure, that there is a God to whom we can go whose, whose very nature is to be merciful. And the psalmist lays claim to that. Be merciful to me, O God. I know that I need your great mercy. 
And he knows with, with confidence that he can go and call upon God. Notice what he says in verse 4, where he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now think about that, that wording, okay? Against you, you only have I sinned? Was David sin just against God? Well, of course not. I mean, think about Bathsheba's husband. All right, the poor guy died innocently trying to be part of David's cover-up. Of course, David's sin was against other people as well. There were, there were more people inflicted with his sinfulness. But what he ultimately understands is that all sin is sin against God. Okay? There is no sin that we can just commit against another person. There are sins that we could possibly only commit toward God. But there is no sin that we can commit that is only toward another person. Because in sinning toward and against another person, we have also sinned against our Creator because our Creator has created us to be in a relationship. And our relationship with our Creator necessitates the way we relate with others. And David cries out in recognition, Oh my gosh, I've done wrong against this person, I've done wrong against this person, I've done wrong against this person, but ultimately, God, I have done wrong against you. I can feel the weight of what that must feel like. But he acknowledges that God is merciful, and he cries out, out of his human need. Now there's another layer to that. If you read on in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my, in, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now once again, this is, this is Psalms, okay? These are expressions of the heart. Does it point toward a truth? Yes, it obviously does. But just kind of understand where David is going with this. He is taking that recognition of his sin beyond just his actions, okay? So his sinfulness is not just his behavior. David becomes aware that sinfulness is part of his nature. This is more than just, oh, I made a mistake. It is a recognition that when I look at my very self, what I see is brokenness what I often call the human condition. Have you ever driven a car that's, whose, that's front end was out of alignment? That pulled toward one side or the other? If you drove that car down the highway and you took your hands off the steering wheel, what would it do? It would go in the ditch, wouldn't it? You would not have to do one thing. That car by itself would go into the ditch. Why? Because it's out of alignment. You don't have to do anything to drive the car into the ditch. It goes there itself. What do you have to do to keep it out of the ditch? You have to, you have to keep a hold of the steering wheel to keep it on the highway, or, and I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, right? Or you can have what done? You can get it aligned, right? You can take it to the garage and say, my car needs fixed. And it'll stay that way for a little while. 
Okay, see, this, this, David recognizes when he looks at his own nature, he sees disalignment. He says, God, God, in my very being, I'm out of alignment with you. It's no wonder I sin. I mean, that's just a manifestation of God that my, that my heart is far from you. The thought kind of goes on in, in verse 6. and Verse 6 is one of these verses that must be kind of hard to translate, translate out of the uh, Hebrew because you're going to get some real variation in what it says. My New American Standard says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make known to me wisdom. Uh, the NIV would be a good example of, an, uh, of a different understanding of that where it talks about uh, you desire faithfulness or truth, and it actually says in the womb, so it points back to a relationship with verse 5 that, that, uh, that, that truth is desired even from the beginning, even before David was born, uh, which is going to be correct. I'm not, I'm not really interested in pursuing that. But regardless of how it's translated, what it points to is a recognition of God's action toward us, that God wants to grant to us, even from our, our most innermost being, even from our original you know, where, where we've started as human beings, there's God's gracious action toward us for the purpose of renewal. And that's a, that's a great part of Wesleyan theology. John Wesley was a person who saw God's grace toward us working even before we realize it. And I think that's a very rich part of Wesleyan uh, theological heritage, that God moves toward us even before we ask for it to be done. That God moves towards us to, to draw us and to not leave us in the hopeless place of our broken nature. Because have you ever seen a car that took itself to the garage and asked for an alignment? I mean, that's kind of silly, right? There's, there's one that draws it. And God says, I know that you're out of alignment, but I give, I give my grace to you. To, to have a desire and to search to come back to me. And that's where, that's where the writer of the psalm is. I want to come back to you, God, because you've given me grace to, to respond to you. And that really becomes like, it, it, it gets us to uh, the real core of, of Psalm 51, which is the response that the psalmist has toward God. Look with me, if you would, in verses 16 and 17. And again, understand the psalmist writes out of that uh, traditional Jewish uh, mindset of, of the sacrifices that are made to God. He says in verse 16, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's one of the more familiar verses out of Psalm 51. You've probably heard it several times over. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. So what offering does God really want to see? It comes from right here, doesn't it? It comes from the heart. It comes from the heart. Turn with me if you would. Keep, keep a marker. Put your bulletin in Psalm 51. Turn a little bit toward the back of the Bible. Just a few books over to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. If you have a study Bible that gives you uh, chapter headings or unit 
uh, headings. If you look at chapter 1, either at the beginning of the chapter or maybe at, at, at verse 2, it probably says something about uh, the, the sinfulness of, of Judah, the sinfulness of God's people. And the prophetic writing begins to address that immediately. I want to read with you beginning at verse 11. Okay, so this is God speaking to God's people through the prophet Isaiah, and he puts it into words in writing here. So God says in verse 11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt, burnt offerings or rams, the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. It's pretty powerful words, aren't they? And and for the for the good Jew, you would have to think. I mean, those that that uh, those words from God must must have really thrown them. I mean, because God had given them these uh, processes by which they can make their offerings to God, and now God is saying that He didn't want that anymore. What had gone wrong? The fact that they continued to make the outward offering, but that their hearts were far from Him. We hear that story time after time. Your, your hearts, you, you, you come into my courts, you bring the offerings, but your hearts are as dark as midnight. And you continue to walk in your lives in manners that are far from my righteousness. It's not that God despised the offerings. It's that the outward offerings had no resemblance to where their hearts were. And so it's out of that that the psalmist writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken, contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's very interesting in, in Isaiah 1, the passage I just read with you is followed in verse 18 by this. And you've probably heard this before. Come now, these are, again, this is God speaking to his people. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Does it make anything come to your mind? Sacrifice of Jesus Christ? How is it that God is going to make our sins cleansed? In good Methodist tradition, how many of you recall something called the mourner's bench? Anybody? Nobody? You all not know what a mourner's bench is? Okay, there's some heads nodding. 
the mourner's bench was a long, sometimes long, wooden plank that was used for people in church services to come and to mourn over their sin and to pray and to receive counsel and comfort. It was not fine and polished. A lot of sometimes in an old church you will still find a mourner's bench. Sometimes it's actually a bench that's at the front of the church. It might even say mourner's bench on it. Let me ask you a question. Do we still have a mourner's bench in do we have a mourner's bench in here? You, you do. It's been replaced with this thing that we call the altar rail. Now, now, don't get me wrong, I like our altar rail. But you see how nice and polished it is? You, you see the cushions to make it a little bit easier on your knees when you bend down? See, the, these things would be completely antithetical to the whole idea of the mourner's bench. It wasn't intended to be comfortable. It was intended to, to resonate with the outward expression of mourning, of contrition, of being sorrowful when we realize our fallenness from God, our broken nature, how we have sinned against God. And it's just interesting how through, uh, you know, through the years, through, through decades that we we have this tendency, as innocent, as, as well-meaning as it may be, but we, we, we smooth the edges, don't we? We, we want to soften the blow. We want to make things a little more comfortable, um, not make people feel too bad, too uncomfortable. And I would want to be very, very careful and clear to say, it's not, it's not my business or intent to make people feel bad. Heavens knows when you leave a place like this, I want you to feel better than when you came. Which we can. You see, the psalmist doesn't lead to a place of mourning just to be left there. The psalmist goes to a place of mourning so that he can find joy, renewal, newness. You see, not only is there a response to God, this, 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 this uh, request of God, you know, um, uh, you know, the response to God is the sacrifice of the broken spirit, the broken and contrite heart, but there's also a petition to God, a plea. In verse 10, the writer says, Create in me, O God, a clean heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You see, that's the request. It, it, it is, God, not only am I sorrowful for my sin, I want you to do something about it. I want you to change me inside 
so that my outward behavior no longer consider no, no longer continues consistently in rebellion against you it would be the same request that you would make if you took your car to the garage you would say to the mechanic in so many words I want you to fix it so it no longer runs into the ditch by itself The psalmist says, create in me, God, a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in, in me. Verse 7, purge me with, with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make, make me to hear joy and gladness and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He wants to move to the better place. And the beautiful thing about King David is that when you, when you look at his life, it, it seems that he did that. It wasn't that he couldn't recognize his own mistakes, which we all should. But he also recognized that with God, he didn't have to be, he didn't have to be defined by his mistakes all of his life. He could move forward from his sin and still be known as a man after God's own heart, as one of the most beloved kings of his people. And you know what? You and I can do the same thing. Anybody ever messed up in life? Look, I would be here all day detailing for you the ways that I have messed up in life. And so many of those things have been against other people. And all of them have been against God. But God doesn't want you and me to be defined by that. That's why he offers us forgiveness. And that's what, that's what the Easter message is about. You see, there's one more move in this that we shouldn't just ignore. And, and that is the response that we have to other people because of God. Look at what the writer says in verses 13 through 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. You see, the psalmist is actually saying, I'm anxious, Lord, you know, for, for the, trans, the transformation in me to be known to other people. I want to be able to go into the world and declare, Lord, how good you are. That, Lord, you, you take someone like me and, and you make them new again. You forgive sin. You, you cleanse the heart, Lord. You make things new again. And, and all of a sudden, does that not start to sound like the Easter message? It's all, it is exactly what Resurrection Day is about. When Jesus steps forth from the tomb... It is a message of saying darkness and despair no longer have a place. God's righteousness claims victory over the worst of the human condition. And we no longer have to be trapped in that darkness because in Christ's resurrection there is hope and joy and newness and promise. The penitential psalms get us there. 
And you see, that's why, friends, I, I, I pray that this becomes something that resonates with your heart. Because I know that it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, I mean, I've never messed up like David did. Are we just measuring in degrees now? Or are, are we all willing to say, Yes, I've fallen short of God's glory. And if I were to be completely honest, I'd do it on an all-too-regular basis. So the cry of the heart of Psalm 51, brothers and sisters, is one that I could put on very easily today. And God invites you to that place to cry out to Him. Put your brokenness, your fallenness, your sin at the foot of the cross and realize that there is a Savior whose love drove him to cover your sin. Have you ever had a little kid come to you, tell you how much they love you, and if they say, I love you this much, do you know what they do with their arms when they do that? What do they do? Stretch them out, right? I love you this much. You see, Jesus says the same thing. When he stretches out those hands, you're going to notice the nail scars in them. He says, I love you this much because I don't want you to live in the darkness of the human condition. I want you to be made new. And I willingly went to the cross to make that happen. Don't pass it up. Take the newness that God offers you today so that you can walk out these doors in the fullness of joy. Amen? Let us pray. Gracious Father, I'm thankful that there were people like the writer of this psalm who were so in touch, God, with with their own condition and with your character. God, I pray that there's something about this psalm that would speak to our hearts today. Some, some way that, that it just touches that point, Lord, where we know that, Father, we need to we need to come to you in the same way that the writer came to you so long ago. With that heart that is contrite, broken, honest. Not, Lord, so that we can just be beat down, but, Lord, so that we could be raised up. Because we know, Father, that that's what you take pleasure in doing. So raise us up, Father. Raise us up out of the confession of our sin into newness of life that we may walk without the burden in freedom and in the joy of your Holy Spirit so that others may come to know the wonderful life that you give in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray it for your glory and we do it in the precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. 
We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.